You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome to the Health Hub on Radio Maria Canada, exploring cutting-edge health and wellness information and therapies, helping you to take your health to the next level. I am your host, Kathy Biasse, and I am an holistic nutritionist and a professional cancer coach. If you have ever had illness-related tests ordered by your doctor, chances are good that you have received the services of a pathologist behind the scenes of your care. Today on our show, we are bringing pathology into the spotlight with my guest, Dr. Muhammad Kamal. Dr. Kamal is a renowned pathologist, CEO, and founder of Omni Pathology Lab, and he is an artist. With an impressive track record as a sought-after international educator, Dr. Kamal has shared his expertise with audiences around the world. His commitment to advancing the field of pathology and his passion for education have earned him a well-deserved reputation as a trusted authority. It's a really interesting uh, topic, pathology. Um, and we talk about we, uh, what pathology is, exploring what pathologists do, and should there be greater a greater patient-pathologist relationship We also get into the topic of how HPV is related to throat cancer, details of Omnilab's new HPV oral test, including how it's administered and who should take it, and why there is an increasing need for an oral HPV test. Today's show has been taped, so no opportunity for calling in, but please do join us after the break for this great conversation with Dr. Muhammad Kamal. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back to our show. As mentioned, um, the show has been pre-recorded, so no opportunity of calling in. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on those locations. And if I did not mention that uh, in my introduction, uh, that was my fault. Yes, this has been pre-recorded. Dr. Kamal, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kathy, for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you on. And it's, uh, you know, speaking to a pathologist, I think is going to be very, very enlightening for a lot of people. Um, You, by nature, are behind the scenes um, from all the pathologists that I've ever encountered. Um, uh, Correct? You are you don't see patients directly? We we don't see patients. um, Some pathologists do. those who are specialized in blood bank, for example, they see pathologists, some cytopathologists who perform fine needle aspirations can be uh, patient facing. And uh, I got the pleasure to do that when we were testing for COVID. I got to swab uh, quite a few patients. So I got to be in front of patients during uh, the COVID pandemic. What 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 education do you need to get into pathology? And you know, really, what was your drive to get into this aspect of medicine? Um, so I I went to uh, so you need for pathologists uh, pathologists are medical doctors, so you go to medical school. And uh, in my case, I um, I went to Cairo University School of Medicine in in Egypt. And uh, in Egypt, you get into medical school right after high school, and it's a seven year program, uh, oh. six years, and then one year of uh, uh, rota- clinical rotations. Uh, in America, you go to a pre med program, which is four years college. You get your, you get a bachelor, and then after that, you apply for medical schools, which would be three to four years. So it's almost the same number of years. 
but uh, but in Egypt you get through it, um, and some other parts of the of the world you get through it right after high school, um, and then after you get your medical degree, um, you people tend to specialize, and um, I uh, decided to specialize in pathology, even though when I got into medical school my passion was for cardiology, but um, things that I've done through my training and things that I've done after I came to the United States uh, kind of made pathology much more attractive. I did a lot of research in medical diagnostics and it became much more, became much more um, um, a natural pathway for me to get into pathology. And um, I got in and I fell in love with the specialty. Um, the, the idea basically is that pathologist, uh, especially if you're if you're specialized in uh, histopathology or tissue pathology, so you tend to be looking at biopsies and looking at tumors and looking at things that are taken out of the patients and make the diagnosis uh, whether they are cancer or inflammatory conditions. Uh, so there is a, a definitive nature to the work where you get to have the final word on a lot of things. You can say this is malignant, you can say this is not malignant, and it makes a big difference. And it, it's it's quite attractive for me to be in an, in an area that has some, um, um, yeah, you get to have the fi- you know, final say or one of the final words about um, a diagnosis. So if you, were, if you were to summarize what a pathologist does in essence, so a patient comes to the hospital, they have a procedure done, um, tissue is sent to a pathologist. Is it simply diagnosing or is there more to it than just the report mm. that a patient's read? That's a, that's a great question. So um, so any, any patient that goes through a procedure, for example, after I did my pathology, I did a fellowship in gastrointestinal pathology. So my focus was on, on reading the biopsies that come out of endoscopy procedures. Somebody with a heartburn, going for an upper endoscopy, somebody with gastritis, uh, they do an upper endoscopy, or uh, people that are going for uh, colonoscopy screening, uh, they remove polyps or tumors. So the, the tissue is taken out in that procedure, and then it goes to the lab. With Inside the lab, there is a, a stage or a processing um, of that sample to get it on a glass slide that is examined under the microscope. So the pathologist reads that slide on, by looking at the microscope and, and with the higher magnification, they can see things that would not be visible with the naked eye. And with that, they have they make a diagnosis. A lot of times that diagnosis cannot just be there. There has to be some kind of a clinical correlation or in our case, clinical and endoscopic correlation. So the physician would take a biopsy and would say that the clinical picture is this patient has diarrhea or patient has heartburn or patient has uh, an obstructive mass. And in light of the findings under the microscope and the clinical and endoscopic information provided by the doctor, we make the diagnosis. So there is a high level of correlation that needs to happen before we provide the final diagnosis on the report that usually the doctor gets and shares with the patient. As you're talking, I mean, it's a level of expertise that, you know, uh, most of us will never, you know, will never see. now, my question for you, and as as you were talking, this sort of popped into my head, with the clinical and then the pathology reports, and I am sure that the medical terminology and the detail in the reports um, is extensive, should patients be reading the reports from the pathologist or the doctor before they get an explanation from their practitioner? Uh, wow, wow, that's a, that's a that's a great question. I actually believe that the patient has every right to get every single document related to mm-hmm. his or her healthcare. Um, however, it is a better process that the report goes to the patient through their treating physician, and and the reason we want that to happen is that there has to be the information needs to be provided in co- in a context right mm-hmm. the clinical context of the patient uh, the patient's symptoms the patient's uh uh findings 
clinical findings would basically be uh, providing the background for the pathological findings. And a lot of times we we have people that they call and they want to speak to the, the pathologist. Um, I personally, my personality also is uh, is making me very comfortable talking to any patient. The only concern about that approach is that by doing this, by speaking to the patient directly, we bypass the treating physician and puts us at a risk of sharing information that may down the road, during the conversation with the treating physician, the patient may identify something that he or she may think it's conflicting. So now we have two different opinions. Um, what I said, what's on the report, with the explanation of the treating physician. So the ideal way to do this would be that we we finalize the report, share it with the doctor, the doctor shares it with the patient, but everything is is should be available to the patient to understand, but it needs to be provided in a good context and, and it's a well-explained when it's correlated with the clinical uh, mm-hmm. scenario. Mm-hmm. Is, there, um, is there a degree of error in pathology or is it black and white? Oh no! There are uh, there are multiple levels of error that can happen in in a in a lab environment, um, and actually one one this is it's actually interesting because um, pathologists in a hospital, for example, you find that the most uh, um, versed physician when it comes to quality is the pathologist because pathologists have. And I'm not saying that the clinicians don't have that, but it is really part of our daily uh, process is is quality. We have quality controls. We have quality assurance systems. We have um, periodical inspections of laboratories that makes us really um, highly aware of uh, quality uh, uh, measures. So um, because of that, you'll find that we have um, looked so much into quality that we also categorized, uh, looked into errors that we categorized them. We have a pre-analytical errors, and there is analytical errors and post-analytical errors. And 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 the, and I'll give you an example of each one. So a pre-analytical error would be a, a sample coming in into the laboratory, and then um, the data entry. Uh, there is an error in the in entering the patient's name or date of birth, for example. Uh, that is identified as pre-analytical error. Um, the, the grave ones, of course, would be, uh, and then the analytical error would be something that you switch a sample. That's mm-hmm. that's part of the of the analytical process, or a pathologist uh, misdiagnoses um, um, a, a case, and then the post-analytical error would be something like a report. Instead of going to Doctor Smith, going to Doctor Jones, and um, and then and then it goes to somebody else, or uh, there's something the delivery of the results, something like that. These are just examples. Of course, I can't go through every possible scenario of the types of errors, but there are uh, errors that can happen, just like in any other operation within the medical or even non-medical. Now, the 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 job of the pathologists, the lab staff, the laboratory director uh, is to put in measures that can allow us to detect or um, first prevent errors, then detect errors, and then, of course, uh, having a well-defined system for corrective action. So, yes, uh, there are errors that can happen, and, and what really separates uh, labs from each other is uh, would be the the, the level of um, the s- systems and the protocols that are put in and the procedures that are put in to identify these errors and prevent them and the corrective actions that usually addresses the error but also addresses the entire process so that d- nothing like this would happen in the future. Mm-hmm. Now, do you find um, with a pathology specialty? that you are continually needing to research and be educated um, with, with new genetics coming in, with new diseases coming yeah. in? Is it yeah. a, a much more in-depth profession than a more clinical doctor? It is a. It is both. Um, both. It's okay. always going to be clinical. I actually, 
one of the um, biggest advocates of uh, promoting the role of the pathologist to be at the forefront of the entire uh, patient care. Um, there are people that think the pathologist should be, you know, the person in the basement, uh, just, you know, like you see on TVs, it's doing autopsy. Yeah. I mean, that's and, the, that's the, our, our thought process, right? We never yeah. see you. We never come in contact with you. Right. But, but I think that, that there is a, a, I use that term a lot now, the modern pathologist, which I identify as somebody who is one, did not get into pathology because they are, they didn't want to talk to anybody. They got into pathology because they have passion for the for that diagnostic process, but they also have the confidence and the communication skills to be able to, you know, ask the questions, uh, become the true consultant the pathologist should be, a consultant to the clinicians. And then that is going to be the pathologist who's going to feel extremely comfortable picking up the phone and asking the clinician, by the way, the sample that you got me, I need more clinical information about it. Or what is the history here? I don't think I have enough to do this. Or feel comfortable saying, you know, this is not as black and white as you may expect it to be. There is some kind of uh, gray zone here. We can't make a definitive diagnosis and be able to explain why that there are features that cannot allow us to give a definitive diagnosis. When that happens and happens with confidence and happens with objective presentation of the reasons why we cannot be definitive, usually clinicians are extremely appreciative of that. And they would not really lose confidence in the pathology because we, in our specialty, people have this fixation on right and wrong, right? Mm -hmm. like even Black and white, yeah. Yeah. And when you ask the question about errors, you know, the first thing that will come to someone's mind about error is like, oh, somebody made a mistake, right? So, and, and our mistakes can easily be discovered, meaning that somebody can be uh, given a diagnosis of cancer. And then that case goes to another institution and they look at the slides that, no, that's not cancer, right? So that is something that can happen. But, but what, what we try to elaborate is that this, um, um, uncertainty, can happen and it is okay to be uncertain and we have to provide the pathologist with the tools to handle those uncertainties for example you know asking getting a second opinion there is nothing wrong with that there is no shame in that and and if you're in doubt just either show it to your colleague in the same institution we call these intramural consultations or if the group looked at it and they still have discrepancy or like difference in opinions, send it out to a, an academic center or to a, a national expert who can look at this and also can come back with an uncertain diagnosis. And we see this all the time. And, and that is a healthy process. Then becomes uh, our role becomes to communicate with 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 the clinicians that, oh, yeah, we couldn't really be definitive here because of X, Y, and Z. Once we do this, um, then the the, phys the clinicians become really um, uh, appreciative of our um, thorough approach, our uh, you know confidence, and, and 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 we always want people to be able to communicate um, to each other that that we are you know together in one team. If I can't make a diagnosis, it is okay. I just, you know, need a second opinion. And a lot of people accept it. We're going to talk about state of the art and the new um, HPV test for throat cancer. But it, there's so many interesting points that are popping up and, and, and a couple of things I really want to address. Do you think that there should be access um, to pathologists for patients? Or do you think that the best line of practice is to keep the pathologist um, away from the whole interactive process? Oh, no, definitely. Having access to pathologists, I think, would be a tremendous, um, ha would have a tremendous value. In fact, I, I recall one of, um, uh, of pathologists that I met very early in my career who um, took me and we toured the hospital where he's practicing. And he was taking so much pride about him making a diagnosis for an inpatient, somebody who's had surgery, made the diagnosis, and then he went to see the patient for some reason, there was something that he went and saw the patient in the room and had a conversation with them. And uh, the patient, when he walks in, she says, 
this is this is my pathologist and it, it is such a refreshing uh, approach to our profession and I actually think that there should be some kind of a a an, an ongoing exposure for pathologists with patients because one of the one of the worst thing that can happen is that pathologists would lose touch of patients in my in my laboratory I always say we don't see patients but every slide in our lab represents a patient mm-hmm. and we really need to understand this very well and really need to to uh, to value our ability to serve people in 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 that way that you're serving somebody who doesn't physically exist but a piece of that patient is uh, is in front of you on that slide and we have uh, an obligation to always remind ourselves about this um i'm going to tell you something that may it may sound like kind of harsh but i remember when i started my pathology residency and um you know one of the first first things that we learned was um autopsies and um and i i as a junior resident i would go and um i'm i'm learning so there's a there's a more senior resident and there is also the the autopsy room technician would be called deaners they're there and they've done this so many times and i remember that the first time i went and they are doing the autopsy uh, and then they, they, they're just like any professional, you know, somebody can, you know, they, they were playing, you know, they had, they were playing music because, you know, you see that a lot, even in surgeries that people play music during surgeries. And I, when I saw that, I, um, I told myself that uh, when I become a senior resident and I'm in charge of the autopsy room, I, I'm not going to do this. I'm, I want to do autopsies as if the patient's family is with us mm-hmm. in the autopsy room in the morning and um I, i'm not i'm not really questioning you know people doing autopsies when playing music and that's okay with me but for for my values i feel like you know uh, i didn't want to do this and i and i do things as if the patient is with me as if as if the family is with me and i think that this makes me feel much better about what i do well, i think that's an amazing uh philosophy and a way a, a way to approach it that is really refreshing you know when people have um a procedure done or a test done, and they know that it's going to pathology, there's a fear that's evoked from yeah. that, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, people yeah. are not, a, the, the diagnosis is going to come back in their favor or not in their favor. And, you, you know, I, I think that, you know, for those people who have never been in this situation, as soon as you hear that your stuff is going, your tests are going to pathology, you're a little bit on edge. So I think, you know, I've never seen my pathologist or any pathologist, but I think to put a human face to that would make that period of stress would make that, you know, that period of waiting a lot more, I don't know, easier to handle. Like knowing that it's just not going to a lab and someone's checking off some boxes or looking at and sending it back. Um, I think that that approach, it's certainly, I've never seen it, as I said, and I think it's, it's very, very warranted. I uh, really do appreciate how you approach things. We're going to take a quick break, everybody. And when we come back, we're going to talk about state-of-the-art laboratories. We're going to talk about the laboratory that Dr. Kamal owns. And we're going to um, talk about the new HPV test for throat cancer. We'll be back in just a few minutes. You are listening to The Health Hub, here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back to the Health Hub, everybody. We're going to continue along this. Uh, I find it such an extremely interesting topic here, pathology, Dr. Kamal. Um, you own your own lab. Um, I'm assuming that you are uh, just really um, happy with your choice as a pathologist. You know, before we get into your lab and this testing, what do you enjoy the most about being a pathologist? Um, I, um, I really love... Uh, what I do, meaning that I like the specialty of gastrointestinal pathology. Uh, I find myself enjoying the more difficult cases. Um, it, it makes my day when I am able to 
you know, diagnose a difficult case. Um, I hire pathologists and some of them are fresh, fresh out of training and um, the process of um, teaching them and uh, guiding them in the beginning of their professional career to become independent pathologists. That part is a tremendous, um, gives me tremendous joy. I really like teaching and I really uh, enjoy watching the learning process. Mm -hmm. So all of that is is great. And then, of course, I enjoy my conversations with my uh, colleagues on the clinical side when they call me and ask me a question about a difficult case or when they compliment um, a, a difficult diagnosis that I made. Um, it kind of makes me, it validates the hard work that I have done over the years. So mm -hmm. I really enjoy this specialty. Um, so I don't know what it's, I mean, I don't know if we have any uh, private Pathology. I'm sure this is something I probably should have checked into before, but Omni Pathology Lab is your um, your lab, and yes. it's a private lab, correct? Um, yes. I think we're familiar with uh, pathology in hospitals, but um, can you tell me about what you would call state of the art pathology services, and who are your clients? Yeah. So, um, so state of the art. So, if you think about a biopsy um, taken from a patient sent to the lab, that chemical process of putting the, the slide, the tissue on the slide and reviewing it, that process has been the same for years, ages. Um, it's done the same way, uh, you know, there has not been major advancement in it. However, the state of the art comes with what do you do in addition to making this uh, microscopic examination. So the technology provides us with additional testing. There are something called immunohistochemistry, where this is a mouthful word, but basically identifying specific um, antigens on the tissue and using the right antibodies and creating these three actions where you highlight the cells that you're looking for. So we deal with something called um, sometimes tumors of unknown origin. You have a tumor that looks um, so poorly differentiated that you can't tell what it's from. So you have a panel of immunohistochemistry stains that you could do, and depending on what's positive and what's negative, you can identify the origin, the original cells from which this cancer is arising. And that helps in treatment because, for example, the colon, we have colon cancer that arises in the colon, but you could have metastatic tumors that can um, arise somewhere else and go to the colon. Uh, so that that is one way of technology or a, a state of the art. There are other things such as molecular testing, where now mo every tumor has some kind of genetic link. So you can identify within the tumor cells certain genetic abnormalities or translocations or um, things that are sometimes acquired, sometimes are inherited. And uh, by doing the molecular testing, you could help identify things about the tumor. Now, uh, the most advanced things would be what they call personalized medicine, where you could uh, identify certain uh, features that would make this particular patient responsive to treatment. Just like, for example, breast cancer and um, HER2 testing. Um, if a patient has breast cancer that's HER2 positive, then she would respond to Herceptin treatment, for example. So, and there are so many similar examples in different kinds of tumors. So that's a way to do it. And then now uh, what we saw with PCR testing and its value in uh, infectious disease diagnosis. Um, so, so there are so many ways to advance now. The other thing that has been advanced now in, in pathology would be digital pathology. Well, the slide itself that used to be examined under the microscope by pathologists could actually be scanned uh, and through AI, you can identify features or quantify number of cells that can have an impact on treatment. And this is, this is now AI and whole slide imaging and pattern recognition. And now you have algorithms that are being developed. And you see now a lot of people with a, with a, with a math background and computer background that are really 
in the trenches with pathologists and finding diseases and finding treatments and finding solutions for advanced medical care. Wow, that's fascinating. As a private yeah. lab, who are your clients? So, um, so we, when we started, uh, we being a GI pathologist, so uh, the vast majority of our customers were gastroenterologists, and um, we expanded our services. So now we provide services to uh, GYN, we provide services to ENT doctors, and um, and that's basically our throat HPV test has been another entry for us into that space. And uh, we have plastic surgeons sending us samples and we have um, surgery centers that are having wide variety of samples that they send to us. Can patients ask to have their pathology done through your lab or this has to come directly from a medical professional? Um, I, 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 this is actually, uh, this, this question uh, touches the nerve in me because... Um, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just saying that because... Um, I believe that which lab gets the biopsy should be a decision of the doctor. The treating physician should be able to say, I want this biopsy to go to this lab. I believe that this is a medical decision. But unfortunately, in our environment now, we are seeing so much um, uh of these decisions being taken away from physicians. And it would be, well, this patient has this insurance plan and mm. all of the lab work coming out of that plan must go to this uh, to this laboratory, right? And a lot of times these laboratories are not, um, as they're much bigger than we are. They have so much influence and they have these contracts, uh, but we feel that we earned the right to compete. And when we talked in the previous segment about um, about the patient's um, anxiety, about delays in lab results, we believe that the faster on time is the top of the quality measure, meaning that a patient who's anxious about results should never wait for five days to get a pap smear result. Mm -hmm. If I can turn in a pap smear result in, in 24 or 48 hours, then that's better for the patient because she's not going to be sitting there waiting for that result to be positive or negative. And she would wait for five days, seven days, eight days. And then the lab that is not delivering on the turn on time standard will continue to get that work regardless because it's dictated by the insurance companies. So yeah, in the ideal world, yeah, the patient and, but before, even before the patient, the physician develops an experience and the physician can tell if this lab has been delivering every time. And they would say, okay, yes, that work should go to that lab. I have clients that part of their patients are under certain insurance plan, and they call me every week to say, oh, it was diagnosed like that in this lab. Would you mind looking at it? Or do, mm -hmm. can you tell me what that means? Can you help me with this? And, 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 it, and they are frustrated, but their hands are tied because it's been dictated by, um, by somebody outside of that medical practice. It's an insurance company or, or some entity that doesn't really know the clinical value of, you know, going to this lab versus that lab. So yeah, the answer to your question is that unfortunately, no. But, but there are some plans that allow this and there are some physicians that can put their foot down and say, you know what, it has to go to this lab. But not everybody has that kind of luxury. Well, when you're, you know, when you're free to talk about this and you get on platforms like you are doing, and I know you lecture, you know, rattling cages is where uh, the foundation is shaken, right? So um, hopefully by, you know, all your appearances and, and being on my show and other things, um, that tide of change can start. Now, you have developed a new HPV virus or HPV test. Yeah. Um, and what is this for? So um, when we started to extend our services to uh, GYN doctors, um, part of the GYN testing is to, you know, the doctors that take a pap smear sample, that pap smear sample is tested for cytology. They look at more, you know, the changes in the cells that can happen. And most of the time, it's a screening for cervical cancer, which is HPV related. And uh, there are uh, panels of testing that can be done for sexually transmitted infections. 
such as HPV, chlamydia, gonorrhea. Uh, so we have testing capabilities, and these are all PCR testing. So when we started serving GYN doctors, we started to see questions from um, doctors um, telling us, um, do you have an HPV test for the oral cavity or the oropharyngeal, which is the throat. Um, so what we did is uh, I kept that in mind. And uh, after the COVID pandemic, we developed uh, uh, an HPV uh, COVID test um, because we really wanted to help the community. And um, we expanded our PCR testing capabilities. But when I was uh, selecting the instrument that we will get for that COVID testing, I made sure that we get an instrument that can also do HPV uh, because we wanted to continue to offer the services after after the pandemic. Um, so uh, towards the end of the pandemic, I and that's like beginning of last year, I said, okay, this is a good time for us to develop the HPV test. So the HPV test that we have for the cervical canal that we do on the pap smears is an FDA approved test. So um, the FDA approval is only for the cervical canal. So I took the test and we developed, we did it, um, a lab developed test, which is like a, a modification of that FDA um, by testing it and running a validation study for throat samples. Why throat? Because uh, HPV related throat cancer is on the rise and it has been rising and to the point that today, in America, we have more men with HPV-related throat cancer than women with HPV-related cervical cancer, which is a, a, a surprising uh, piece of information. And I, when I looked at this, I was shocked. So I said, okay, so if this is an HPV-related cancer um, and it's happening in the throat, we have to have a throat HPV test. It's a, it's a, it's a no-brainer. Um, so I said, let's develop that test. So we developed it. We took samples from the throat and we run a validation study. Um, Omnipathology is um, designated as a high-complexity laboratory. So a high-complexity laboratory is allowed to have what they call lab developments. We are, because we're high-complexity lab, we can develop our own tests. So we developed the lab, the, the, the test for throat HPV. And uh, we found that we have an, a, a wonderful assay uh, where we have 95% sensitivity, 100% specificity. And we said, let's offer that test. And um, and and I, I, I'll, I'll I don't want to give you an extended answer, but I just want to tell you why we believe that this test is, is something that needs to be offered to, to patients. Very simple approach. Cervical cancer and throat cancer are both HPV related. Every woman going for a pap smear gets tested for HPV. A positive HPV in the cervical canal does not mean that this patient has cervical cancer, but it is well documented that persistent HPV infection is linked to cancer development. Same thing happens in the throat, but there is no throat HPV test. So we said we have to test for that because how are we going to identify the patients with persistent HPV infection if we don't test for HPV? Very simple logic. It's it's exactly the same cancer, and we just want to apply. One cancer is rising because there is no screening for it, and the other cancer is declining because we have well-established guidelines for cervical cancer. Okay, two questions. Uh, well, actually, one is a statement. Okay, we are assuming that everybody knows what HPV is, but could right. you spell that out? Can you take sure. you know the acronym <laughs> and let people know what HPV is? So HPV is human papillomavirus. It is a DNA virus, and it is the most common sexually transmitted disease. I know in America, but I think in the Western uh, hemisphere and in developed countries, I think it is the most common sexually transmitted infection okay so it it uh, it is linked to um multiple uh, sexual partners in the in the case of um of the cervical canal multiple genital sexual partners in the case of throat multiple oral uh, sexual partners and of course we know that there that for example the first person to speak about throat cancer and it's linked to hpv was michael douglas 
and um, and basically we feel that the uh, that this was a great um, approach to raise awareness because people didn't really know that and he was courageous in fighting the cancer but it also in talking about it and raising awareness and educating people about it so I can assume that we can say anyone who's sexually active it would it would be a, a good idea to get this test done yes yes and and then again here's here's another thing that I I um, I wanted to make sure that we do um the whole thing is having access to patients' throats, right? So um, normally, if you go to a primary care doctor, they should examine your throat. And you see that you remember like you have the, the wood stick and they say, open your mouth and mm-hmm. say, ah, they look at your throat. And there are some um, also the the strip test that they do on the throat for people that have strip throat uh, infection. Uh, but I uh, thought that there is a lot of conversations in the dental space where they are now talking about the oral health and it's linked to overall health mm-hmm. and looking at the whole patient and that there are things about uh, oral health and overall wellness so i said well dentists and dental hygienists have unparalleled access to patients throats so why don't we go to dentists and talk to them about this now a lot of dentists are very well educated about oral cancer because also oral cancer and oral pharyngeal cancer they're very close types of cancer and they're both hpv related um and and talk to them educate them give them a chance to educate their patients about that test so that's one approach the second approach was that we have to also um educate people that testing positive does not really mean that you have cancer, but we want to identify those who have persistent HPV infection because those are the patients that we can take and refer to ENT doctors where they do endoscopy and they can look and they may be finding, you know, lesions that are too early, having that early detection, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the whole idea is to find a way to do early detection. And I'm going to assume that this is a, a simple swab that really you, it could be a standard test or a, at least offered um, in in the clinical in dentistry as yes. an appointment uh, policy. And what what really helped me um, make the decision of doing an oropharyngeal swab is that I have seen with COVID that people were just like really readily going in for the nasopharyngeal swab mm-hmm. and. A lot of tests were offered at an oropharyngeal swab. So people are just like becoming more and more accustomed to this. So it is really a way to go. But but the, but the idea is um, you want the screening test to be simple, affordable, right? And, and that is a big component of the value. So, for example, it wouldn't make any sense to have an MRI as a screening test. It's expensive. It takes a long time. And it becomes it's not it's not as economic, but a simple swab that could be done at a dentist or a primary care doctor or a GYN doctor makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations on this. I think it's a wonderful movement forward. Um, you know, you harp about it. I harp about it. A lot of people harp about early detection, um, and you know, a simple non you know inobtrusive testing could be just a way to to prevent so many cancers before we leave the show um and thank you so much for all the information that that you've given us tell us about your art i don't want this time to pass before people hear about your artwork and yeah. uh the foundation of it and 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 what you what you gain from it yes yeah um uh, thank you for bringing that up. Um, but but my 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 final thoughts also about the test in general about the first segment and myself as be, being a pathologist and how I feel about it. I always tell people that I consider myself in the business of cancer prevention, not cancer diagnosis. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think that pathologists diagnose cancer. We are actually in the in in the field of cancer uh, prevention because early detection leads to cancer prevention so and, and increases survival even if you find a cancer early that enhances the patient's survival better than you know finding it when it says stage three or stage four right um, 
going back to the art piece, uh, the art part came uh, completely by accident. So I, um, when I opened up my lab, and again, I've been I've been lecturing on pathology for many years. Um, so I have in my library and in my hard drive, I have a lot of pathology images from lectures. You know, when we teach pathology, you always show pictures of tumors and a lot of microscopic images that I have. And when I was opening up my lab, um, a friend of mine who was helping me uh, with the interior design of the lab, she looked at uh, some of the images. She said, these are really, they could be used uh, to decorate the walls. And I just, you know, took that and I said, okay, pick some. And she picked some pictures. And actually, she took some pictures and did some Photoshop that obliterated the diagnostic features. So it became like really not as attractive to me because I'm I'm still in the pathology mode. Only in the know people would, <laughs> would be able yeah. to pick those out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, but then uh, with uh, with time, I started to really see things and I went through phases in, in my art. Uh, the first phase was basically looking at the usual stains that we do. And you see the pink and the purple color because these are the stains that we have. And I, I created a lot of artistic images from those uh, original pictures. And as a scientist, I felt like I have to, it's part of my science integrity or honesty that I do not want to alter any image, right? And people looked at this and started to really like that. And then selfishly, I felt, right, but this is like found art. Like, you know, you find a, a rock and it looks artistic and you show it to people or take a picture of it. So I said, but, but where is the artistic input? Right. So I started to learn how to digitally manipulate the images and to add color to them. And I find myself to create things that I show it to my wife and my kids and they, and they, you know, they, before I show it to anybody outside and they, they see to really like them. And, and if you know my family, they're not really the kind of people that would care much about hurting my feelings if they were not good. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, so I said, okay, maybe there is something. I started sharing some of these pictures. And, um, and then that was like the second stage of this art where I'm not really looking at shapes with the original colors. I'm looking at, 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 at shapes that can be created with the new colors. And um, I have a, a colleague of mine, a physician, who looked at some of my pictures because they're decorating our walls here. And he said that uh, some of the colors tell tell him that uh, there is a manic part of my personality because sometimes some of them are really bright colors. And, I, and sometimes I just feel like I want to share these, you know, fiery colors. So... Uh, but then um, I was asked, does, does this art make you a better pathologist? And uh, I actually don't think it makes me a better pathologist. I actually feel that it makes me, I, I am more appreciative of, of, you know, God's creation, nature's uh, findings, things that we find normally in nature. I feel that this, this art makes me, makes me able to, show these things for people to appreciate and and i tell people that art is my art is is really about the experience it's really about the audience it's not what i want to show you it's what you see in that because a lot of it seems to be abstract and one image can you know create completely different reactions from two people and and i i find that to be a really satisfying uh, experience for me when I do something and people like it and appreciate it. And I hesitated in the beginning to call myself an artist until an artist friend of mine told me, Muhammad, you're an artist. You do things, uh, especially the microscopic things. We would never be able to see it without you. So yes, you, you are an artist. And of course, I'm doing this because as a physician, everything to prove my profession or my qualifications is on my wall. I have my degrees, I have my board certification, but as an artist, I felt really bad showing up and saying, hey, I'm an artist and I haven't gone to art school, I haven't earned this, and I would worry about offending uh, artists, or I call <laughs> I call them real artists. Real artists. Well, I've looked around your site. Now, the site for your art is, it's K-I-M-O Fine Art. Chemo Fine Art? Yes. Is that yes. how you say it? So Yeah, and Chemo is, is my nickname, so my friends... Oh, okay. 
from high school and uh, and you know college they call me chemo because chemo is the nickname for kamal in egypt got it okay so yeah i've looked around the site if you want to look um at dr kamal's artwork it's k i m o fine art um and omnipathology if you're interested now can people contact you through yes. omnipathology Yes, they can reach out to us. Um, uh, we can offer the test uh, to to individuals, uh, just like what we did with COVID. Uh, but also we had someone from Chicago calling us and said that, you know, my patient listened to you on a podcast and she told me about that test. I listened to your, you know, interview and I read about this test and I want to do it. And she was a dentist in Chicago. So you can go to your physician and tell them about our test and they can order it or we can send you a kit, but it needs to be swab. You have to be swabbed by a, by a healthcare provider, and then we will get it. And within 24 hours, you will have a result on your throat HPV status. And that okay. website is omnipathology.com. Omnipathology.com. Now, are the tests offered, or is this test offered outside of the United States? Uh, you know, um, it's definitely offered in Canada because okay. you are FedEx away from us. We can easily do that. Um, we can offer it to anyone who's interested. Actually, we get a lot of inquiries about it from Europe. So uh, we're we're really in, in the stage. We're going to explore, you know, finding a way to make that test available to people all over the world. But uh, Canada is right next door to us. So. Perfect. So we're on the we're on the map for you. That's yes. wonderful. Dr. Kamal, yes. thank you so much for joining us. What a great conversation. I really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you so much, Kathy. I, I do appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to your audience. Everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.